Hello and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tagal, and today's episode is a little different. It's a special industry discussion recorded as part of a remarketing roundtable series designed to keep the conversation going in the absence of an in-person CPHI worldwide. This is an exclusive for Molecule to Market, so please enjoy and share with your colleagues. So today is the first in a series of discussions featuring some fantastic industry experts. For context, we kind of know firsthand how valuable it is to have those face-to-face conversations with colleagues and peers at events from the sector. Um, this would have been my 15th CPHI this year, so I'm very sad that that's, <laughs> that's not happening. Um, but in light of the cancellations and uh, you know, in-person CPHI, we wanted to make sure that those conversations still had a platform, albeit in, in virtual format. Hence, the uh, remarketing roundtable idea was was born. Um, each of these roundtables are designed to discuss kind of topical trends, uh, future plans, developments in the pharma and biotech contract services space um, as a direct result of what's happened in 2020. And um, the sessions will be available to download and hear on the Molecule to Market podcast and also via our website after the live recording. So today's roundtable tackles the global supply chain and the impact of COVID. Quite the topic. Um, and before we kind of dive into this session, we want to start with some introductions. Who are these lovely people that you see on screen in front of you today and that they're going to be sharing their, their insights with you all? Um, I'll start with an introduction uh, from myself and then I'm going to pass to my co-host, Laura, who will then pass to our esteemed guests. So if you don't know who I am, I'm Roman Segal and I'm the founder and global president at Remarketing. I oversee Remarketing's US operations uh, here in Boston. Uh, for background, I've spent my entire career in the pharma and biotech outsourcing space. Uh, and during that time, I've had the privilege of working with and advising uh, over 60 brands in life science supply chain uh, across comms, digital, creative and, and business strategy. Uh, I'm very proud of Built Remarketing into the international marketing agency that it is today, supporting life science clients across the globe. Uh, and our team is now around 40 people and I adore each and every one of them, including my colleague, Laura, who I'm gonna to pass to now. Thanks, Roman. So I'm Laura Child, I'm the CRO sector lead at Remarketing. I spent my career embedded in life science, uh, managing complex global clinical trials at some of the world's largest CROs. The best thing about my role here at Remarketing is that I can inject creativity into uh, implementing innovative strategic direction on a daily basis, whether that be building customer brand strategies or developing the CRO business sector. And I do so all whilst drawing on my experience of living and breathing the life science sector. I'm incredibly excited to be here with our esteemed guests today. So I'm going to welcome our panel, Eric, Dan, Dan and Stefano. Eric, if you'd like to make a start, I'll hand over to you first. Absolutely. Thank you. So hello everybody, I'm Eric Heffler, uh, Vice President of Manufacturing Services within the CDMO company Resifarm, Swedish-based CDMO. Uh, I've been with the industry for 27 years now, and uh, this year has been a very particular year, and uh, not only having the responsibility for a large part of our supply chain, I have also, during spring and summer, coordinated all our uh, activities around mitigating COVID-19. So happy to join you today. 
Thanks, Eric. Dan, do you want to go next? Sure. Well, yeah, my name's Dan Stanton, and I am the founder and editor of Bioprocess Insider, part of Bioprocess International. Um, I am a B2B journalist um, who, for the past well, decade, I believe, um, has been covering the life sciences space. Um, particularly the outsourcing space. Um, I started off on the small molecule side of things, uh, following uh, um, the trends within the industry there, um, covered the clinical side of things, but now I focus mostly on the biomanufacturing, uh, the fact manufacturing of biologics, manufacturing of vaccines and such, which means the past <laughs> six, seven months or so, has been nonstop from a news perspective um, as more and more companies look to bring vaccines and therapeutics uh, to the market as quickly as possible to try and um, sort out this crazy epidemic that we're all living through. Thank you, Dan. And just pass to Stefano as well to introduce yourself, Stefano, please. So thank you very much for inviting me. My name is Stefano Console. I'm very pleased to join this panel because the topic is specifically very, I'm very interested to. And uh, as in my career, I'm a chemist and uh, I spent almost 28 years in the pharmaceutical industry, specifically in contract manufacturing. Today, I am the founder and senior advisor of Oriento, that is a small advisory company based in Switzerland, and that is uh, involved a lot in new innovation, innovative technologies for manufacturing and especially on the small molecule side. Thank you Stefano um, and back to me I told you our guests were impressive and uh, uh, for the for the people that are watching live we have a Q&A box at the bottom so if you want to add any additional questions as we start the discussion then please just add your questions in there. All right let's get started. Um, first question that we've got today is a nice easy one. Um, has the COVID-19 pandemic directly impacted your supply chain or the supply chains of those that you work with or that you deal with? So I'm going to pass to Eric, obviously given your role uh, at a global CDMO at Rassi Farm, uh, it'd be really good if you can talk about, I suppose, the direct impact you guys have had uh, at Rassi Farm. Yeah, when it all took off in, in Europe in March, uh, there was uh, definitely an impact that we could see immediately because suddenly it became very uncertain on how to manage logistics and what were the rules and regulations for cross-border transport, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, however, I think that solved itself uh, fairly quickly. And uh, I think the industry and the transportation within the European network came back to normal or close to normal within a few weeks, which was very, very positive, of course. However, when we see uh, long distance transportation and overseas transportation, that is still a bit of an issue. Uh, I think uh, from what we can see, I think uh, border passages and, and so on, that, that has been sorted, but uh, the capacity in, in particular for air freight is uh, much, much limited compared to what, what a normal state would be. So it is difficult for, for overseas transport still, uh, but starting to see some recover, recovery also there. For the time being, I, th I think uh, we are currently operating more or less as normal now. And I would say that 
after say May time when when the uh, the uh, severity of the pandemic started to decline slightly in southern Europe we, we have managed to come back to more or less normal operations if we consider uh, changes that you've made to the supply chain in in view of the COVID-19 pandemic how do you sort of create a buffer or ensure healthy stock levels in a way that can manage confidence with your clients yeah, several, since we are a CDMO, several of our clients have asked what, what measures we have taken in order to ensure that we have sufficient inventory levels for incoming components, materials, etc. However, this has not been so easy because uh, obviously we have more or less continued to manufacture with the same pace as normal. And uh, I think this goes also for a lot of our materials and, and the API suppliers. So it's not like there has been an excess of material on the market that we can use to build inventory. So now half a year into the pandemic, I think uh, the supply chains have not changed that dramatically, even though people are of course working more actively on inventory management and trying to secure critical components and materials. But the change is not so, so big, actually. And Stefano, from, from your perspective, I suppose you, you see the industry as a, as a consultant and, and work with various different types of companies in the contract services space. Is your experience similar to what, what Eric just mentioned there um, or you know, other ways that you're seeing the pandemic kind of directly impact the, the supply chain? And, and once you've answered that, actually, Dan, it'd be interesting. I know you're not necessarily directly, you know, supplying drug products yeah. or anything, but interesting, Dan, as well, what you're hearing, I suppose, from a media perspective as well. So I'll let Stefano go, go first. Yeah, uh, in effect, uh, this event that was uh, unexpected showed some problems and, uh, and the supply chain is a complex, especially from a CDMO point of view. And uh, I fully agree what uh, Eric was just explaining. Uh, I would like to maybe to point two aspects of the of the of the of these uh, critical points. One is of course the materials, and I mean talking about uh, small molecule manufacturing, for example, raw materials, but in some extent also some components for 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 machinery and and so on. For maintenance, uh, maybe this was less a problem. But on the other side, also the, the people in the facilities. Uh, till today, on these two aspects, uh, in the past uh, decades or 15 years, there was a, a big move from uh, uh, Europe to Asia in terms of supply of uh, basic raw materials. And uh, this created some uh, weakness on the supply chain. Uh, remember, I'm a chemist, so I defend chemistry. And, uh, but the reality is that in some countries, and UK is a, is a real example, chemistry disappeared. Uh, is a you know, story that uh, a lot of faculties in chemistry in UK, they decided to shut down because they had not any more students. Uh, and the reality today is, uh, uh, and, now I'm naming UK just as an example, but Italy also is a very similar situation. The uh, sites that can manufacture basic fine chemicals that are important raw material for, uh, 
for the active ingredients today are not anymore available uh, in Europe. So the sourcing uh, moved to Asia. What clearly, and it was direct experience as an advisor, we have been involved in, in a number of requests. Uh, uh, Stefano, can you find an alternative supplier? Because our Chinese uh, supplier, nothing to say against Chinese, but this was the real example. Uh, they cannot supply because there is no flight, there is no ship. I mean, material cannot move from, from China to, to Europe. And, uh, and the problem is that for many, many materials, we were unable to identify ourselves as other advisors that we are in, in, in a network and we know some materials really are not available. So this is definitely a point that uh, uh, the uh, European uh, industry and the same for the US, but the US there is already a movement on that, but European are still uh, sleeping uh, too much in my opinion. There should be a change. You know, some investment in innovation where as advisor we promote innovation. And uh, we have to start again to do chemistry in Europe, but not as it used to be in the past. The second aspect, and I go very quickly about the the operative part, CDMO industry, with few exceptions, still the uh, um, manual and human intervention is really, uh, really needed. And uh, one area where we work a lot is particle engineering, for example, that is making powders. And you have uh, uh, technologies, equipments that in principle can work uh, without the man presence, but still in many facilities, you have someone sitting in front of the machine or the equipment looking, the equipment running in the right way. Why? Because there is a, some, uh, what we call, is called industry 4.0. I mean, the, the, the new digitalization and all these tools uh, to improve the control and uh, of the process on, on the technology. And this still requires a lot of people be present, uh, physically present in the facility. And this is another problem because I, I, am, I imagine that Eric had to manage uh, all, all the rules also inside the facilities. And this is, uh, you know, some, some time is easy, some other time is, is rather difficult. And this could have an impact on the manufacturing. And this is what uh, uh, we have seen. Of course, uh, in case uh, having time, I have some example blind without saying names, but really this example showed to me that uh, uh, is a good chance now to, to make some steps and to modify what has been done in the same way up to date. Thanks, Stefano. Um, yeah, well, Roman, um, as, as you pointed out, I don't make or supply drugs, uh, contrary to what you may have heard. Um, <laughs> but I do want to jump on uh, some of the points that Eric and Stefano made there, because um, as I said, I, I follow the industry. I'm hearing from uh, manufacturers, from suppliers about some of the um, uh, problems they've seen in the past six or seven months. And um, uh, very much like Eric said, I think there was a, a, a fear that supply chains would be disrupted um, more than they were so. Um, uh, this industry, our industry, is um, obviously at the forefront of, um, of, of healthcare efforts and it has really not had the impact that many other industries have had. Um, uh, I mean, probably just because 
as I said, it is at the, at the forefront of healthcare efforts, especially in um, trying to curb the epidemic, uh, the pandemic. Um, but then, you know, the other side of the coin, I think Eric brought up about um, the, uh, the workforce. Um, this industry is also very much used to working in aseptic conditions. So um, there's always been a supply of, um, of PPP. There's always been um, uh, rules in place in manufacturing facilities where um, people are suited and booted and um, are, are quite able to adapt to um, situations where um, uh, social distancing uh, can be put in place pretty quickly. Um, so when you've got the combination of, of that sort of um, uh, th that ideology um, instilled in the ethos of a manufacturer plus the lack of disruption of supply lines um really from what i'm seeing it's it's business is kind of booming and supply chains have not been particularly affected uh, something that stefano did bring up and i think this may be a different point altogether um covid has highlighted um the concerns um about the geographical supply chain uh, and definitely brought some of the um, need or the desire, should I say, to um, manufacture locally to the forefront. Um, probably mostly seen in the US, but then again, this is an election year. Um, so the, the problems that the industry has had or felt that it's had with a global supply chain in the past 10, 20 years is really being addressed now because of the political situation, because of the COVID situation, and there is definitely um, growing talk of trying to regionalise uh, the manufacturing of, of, of raw materials and uh, finished products as well. Okay, great. Thanks, Dan. So then if we consider sort of the, the geography of supply chains moving forwards into sort of 20, 20, 21, 22 and beyond, what sort of trends do you expect us to see? I, I don't know whether, Dan, you maybe want to make a start on that one and then we can hand through the, the team. Sorry, Laura, you cut out briefly there. Um, did you say the general trends of the global supply chain? The, yeah, yes, the geography of supply chain moving forwards 21, 22 and beyond. Well, um, as I kind of alluded to with the political situation, there's been a big push, especially in the US, to um, make manufacturing, make things in the US, specifically drugs. Um, they have a lot of issues that we probably shouldn't get into here regarding pricing and um, the security of supply. Um, I think some of those um, that, that those concerns have been uh, um, exacerbated by the COVID situation. But there have been uh, heavy investments from the um, US government, particularly into um, a couple of companies that um, aim to manufacture uh, um, drugs in the US for the US. Uh, I think most famously or infamously, uh, Flow Corporation, which received 350 odd million dollars back in May. Uh, they're really trying to um, change, <laughs> they're trying to change the, um, the, uh, the global aesthetics of, um, of, of drug manufacturing and it's going to be quite interesting to see how that goes going forward. Um, there are a lot of questions there with, with such companies because as um, Eric and Stefano can attest, our industry is a global industry. Um, it's looked to um, the, the sort of lower cost countries of India and China for the past 15, 20 years. And it's, it's pretty hard to 
reverse that overnight. Um, in Europe, there's been, if you have a look at the CPHI global uh, um, annual report, which I think was published today, there seems to be um, some sense of uh, um, confidence in the Chinese market dropping um, amongst um, well, the people who conducted, a, the, the people who uh, responded to a survey within CPHI. Now there's much speculation as to why that is. You could say it's because of COVID, you could say because there's this sort of nationalistic feel going through many industries at the moment, or you could say that, um, you know, the, the Chinese drug industry is evolving and really looking to produce uh, in China for itself. Um, so but at the same time, there is an interesting point that Italy has resurged as a uh, um, as a an, an API as as a conf um, somewhere confident to make APIs. Um, Italy's obviously been a, a hotbed of API manufacturing for years and years, but has seen um, uh, a lot of processing and production moved to countries like India and China. But it seems there is a resurgence in. Um, in countries like Italy to manufacture for the local markets. But once again, this is kind of speculation based on a, um, a, on a CPHI survey. So I just wanted to pick up on a point there and maybe pass to Eric. Eric, uh, Resty Farm has sites in Italy and India. So, I mean, are you able to talk a little bit about one, what Dan said and what you're seeing in those geographies actually, that are both actually both countries that have been hit particularly hard by the, by the pandemic? Um, and then I suppose just more generally back to Laura's question around how you see the supply chain evolving um, and, and then certainly Stefano would love your thoughts on it afterwards as well. I mean in terms of trends I, I think uh, Dan had an important point here and that is that the change in the pharmaceutical industry takes quite a lot of time. I mean it's uh, if you're going to set up new manufacturing it's heavy investments and long lead times and I think it's too early to draw too far going conclusions uh, when it comes to the coming trends for, for the footprint of, of pharma. Um, however, I, I do believe that people will probably continue to look on the particular steps involved in the supply chains. And I think you, Stefano, you, you mentioned PPE or was it that? I don't remember. But PPE is an area where we have seen issues actually and, and almost ran out of stock for some, some, uh, some material needed to carry out manufacturing. So that, that was a weak point in, in our value chain that we were not aware of before the pandemic. So I think people have started to realize more about risks in, in the supply chain. When it comes to the two countries you mentioned, Raman, Italy and India, yes, we have been impacted quite hard. Uh, it goes back to what Stefano talked about, the people in the plants. When it was at peak in Italy, we had absence levels uh, around 35% in our Italian sites. And that is because we, were, we are in the epicenter of the, the outbreak in Italy. So close to Milan, in, in Brescia and Milan. And that was tough. And of course, uh, with that sort of absence level, you ca cannot operate uh, at full speed. In India, we are located uh, northeast of Delhi and in Bengaluru. And uh, the, the, the first 
and the biggest problem that we've seen in, in India is um, is that people have had uh, big difficulties to get to work because uh, in particular when when there was the original lockdown during spring uh, well logistics simply didn't work as they used to so we, we had a few weeks where it was very difficult to to have our employees coming to work but then in countries like Italy, Spain, uh, India, where France, where the outbreak has, has been uh, quite hard. I mean, the most important thing for us has been to make sure that we can install procedures and routines uh, for safety and uh, so that our employees can feel safe at work and not fear to get infected by going to work. Eric, before we move on to Stefano, I, if I can just touch on that for a moment, because mm -hmm. when it came to the sickness and the, and the PPE um, issues with, with stock levels, a real human issue became a, a business issue at that stage. Uh, so I'm just wondering really what things you've implemented would become a sort of permanent uh, adaptation to, to your business routine and what things would be more reactive to the actual pandemic situation. So is there anything really, I, I guess I'm asking, that will become a long-term part of your working practices moving forwards? Now, but, uh, there, there is one thing actually that, that I can highlight and that, that is that our uh, procurement network started to work very actively together to look for these type of components, gloves, uh, coats, uh, hair covers, whatever. <laughs> and uh, I, I think uh, this has led to that we now have a more fast moving uh, network between our different sites. So that is definitely something that was reactive when we, we did it first time here for PPE, but has continued also for other components. So, when it comes to uh, materials that we know can be critical, it can be packaging materials, raw materials, and also other components, we, we actually now have a, a global list where the different sites can, can raise their hand if they see that they are risking to go, go low in inventory on anything. And then we use the full network to solve that. Thanks, Eric. Okay, Stefano, over to you if there's anything you'd like to add regarding the, the sort of global geography of, of supply chain. Yeah, uh, yes, and I mean, I think that uh, more than the ge geographical path, I, I believe is important. Uh, just, uh, uh, I think the pandemic uh, just highlighted uh, quickly the problem that is standing for for many us, I just want to, to tell you a sh very short story, but just to tell you how sometimes supply chain are managed in, in this very rigid uh, uh, pharmaceutical industry that don't want to change. Uh, was uh, more than 15 years ago, uh, I was working as a CDMO in business, uh, and my company used to work. Uh, we were involved in uh, API exclusive manufacturing that included the micronization step that was done to a third party site, not at our facility. And our client, Big Pharma, was very proud that we were able to, to build independent supply chain and so on. And one day during an audit of this third party micronizing contractor, I realized walking to the, the warehouse that there were some uh, API, the same API coming from the other, uh, let me say, our competitor making the API, 
that used to myconize in the same site. So and the myconization is the last step of the API manufacturing before to deliver to the formulation. So it was not a starting material, it was something very advanced. This was 15 years ago. Uh, very simple risk analysis on the supply chain was very easy to, to provide the results to show that the supply chain was at risk because a crucial step was done in the same site for independent uh, uh, chemical synthesis chain. So this is just a short story, just to say that uh, unfortunately, uh, some companies, this really depends on the, uh, how the companies manage, which is the philosophy of the company, which is the management of the company. And this not, uh, I, I know very good uh, example in India and China, and not, not because there's good practice in Europe and or United States. But the point is that the companies decide to uh, focus the attention or to improve the profitability, cutting some uh, expertise. And uh, I think uh, Eric experience working in CDMO, in the past, uh, large organization, they had large team for supply and, uh, and uh, contract manufacturing management. So for the outsourcing part, today you are dealing maybe with one, two person that have to deal from starting material, uh, the contract manufacturing for the API, for the finished dosage, the analytics, stability studies, and so on. So the time that these people can devote to the supply chain and to evaluate the risk is very low. In fact, as, as advisor, we have been involved in a number of uh, uh, supply chain risk analysis, and, and some situations are really dramatic, and it's not something you can change tomorrow morning because once you have a registered product, any change you have to do in the, in the registration dossier, it might take a lot of time. Here is a matter to start with a new mindset or restart because uh, we can also take uh, ideas from the past and to, to have a different discipline. What Eric was saying about DPIs, you know, there are a lot of measures you can do to mitigate uh, to be in a critical situation, including the fact, and again, uh, 27, 28 year experience, sometime even the analysis on how the DPI are used in the normal process can really uh, allow you to understand uh, which are the volume needed, which is the forecast, which are the instead of have a single supplier for the gloves, maybe to have more than once, because the, the, the impact of this pandemic event on the manufacturing operation is not only for the pharmaceutical industry, it's also for, for the glove maker, you know, because, uh, and so to expand this uh, supply chain analysis using, uh, today there are a lot of very good tools to do that, including uh, the increase on automation, because again, also on this, uh, uh, there was a question before about uh, the, the continuity of the business. Many sites, they do not have continuity business plan. And, and uh, some measures are not in place, but could be with a very limited investment. Some great points there, Stefano. Thank you. You are listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Um, moving on to the next question then, do you think we're going to see a shift towards more parallel manufacturing or localized sort of domestic 
tighter controlled or at least contingency sourcing because of COVID. I don't know, Eric, whether you maybe want to take, tackle this one first. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, uh, the big pharma companies utilizing CDMOs uh, would probably very much like to see this. I mean, dual sourcing is not that common in the industry today because it is pretty expensive. So I, I think it will all be dependent on how long the pandemic will continue and how serious it will be over the next six to 12 months. Uh, there will certainly be people trying to establish uh, dual sourcing to mitigate risks in the supply chain. But um, personally, I, 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 maybe this, this will be completely wrong as an assumption, but personally, I think uh, the likelihood of things turning more or less back to normal is, is pretty high. Interesting, very interesting. I mean, and, and Dan, would you would you agree with that? And and before you answer that, I mean, certainly I, I've had conversations with people that work directly with say, biotech companies at an earlier phase. They're not at the commercial manufacturing stage. I have talked about um, dual sourcing at actually a clinical, an early clinical trials phase because <laughs> the biotechs invested so much money they don't they don't want to miss their clinical trials deadline. So. I suppose just generally, you know, answering that question, but any specifics you've got around the biotech sector and anything interesting that you see in there, Dan? There's a few interesting things that have popped up. Um, I think um, I, I think going on from what I said earlier, and I think what Eric was sort of saying that that this push for um, regional manufacturing, I don't think it's going to um, particularly work in the long term, or I don't think too much is actually going to happen in the short term as well. I think it's more rhetoric. Uh, it, it, yeah, it's more part of the discourse than actually happening. Although, um, if we look at what Regeneron is doing, um, they're developing a an antibody cocktail, which um, made it into the news this week because um, um, President Trump um, claimed it was a miracle cure. It might be a miracle cure; it's unproven. But they um, they have shifted um, all of their all of their products that were currently being that are currently being made in uh, their New York facility over to Ireland so that that facility can focus solely on manufacturing the monoclonal antibody cocktail for the US market. Um, I mean, I'm sure they have other reasons why they've done that rather than manufacturing it in Ireland to ship it over to the US. But you know, with the um, with the current climate, you've got to kind of look at that as a um, a small piece of evidence that sort of shows that they're trying to make in country for that country. Um, and there's a few other um, examples with. Um, vaccines and therapies being developed for COVID-19 where we've seen that as well with uh, uh, Pfizer and BioNTech. Um, uh, you can kind of see where the manufacturing divide is happening where the, the facilities in the US are kind of obviously serving the US whereas the facilities in Germany that are run by BioNTech are going to be serving Germany and, and Europe. So there is that kind of initial split, but I don't think that is, um, I don't think that um, is testament of anything, any, any bigger changes that are really going to evolve out of this regarding um, localizing manufacturing going forward. Thanks, Dan. Stefano, uh, any thoughts similar or different? You mentioned uh, uh, President, President Trump there. Where this is. This seems to be a, a, 
a lighter debate than some of the ones we've seen on <laughs> that Laura and I have seen on TV in the US over the last so well, yeah thank you for keeping it all Absolutely. sensible we can shout uh, if you want I must say that on the lo the locali locali localization or the local manufacturing I'm a completely an opposite uh, situation in my vision compared to the the two other uh, panelist and uh, and uh, in effect uh, it depends uh, I think uh, regarding which product you are considering if you if we look at the most advanced product application like cell therapies forget to have a single global supply okay of course if we are talking about uh, with respect but to, to aspirin uh, yeah probably makes sense to have a single global uh, manufacturing site that supply all the world. So uh, I think that uh, I'm for, for the local manufacturing uh, that is uh, working, in my opinion, very well for what is called personalized medicine or some specific products where there is a very high technical content, technical level. Uh, and on the other side, uh, using existing infrastructure with more classical uh, and standard technologies where you know there could be a cost uh, a cost benefit uh, for for the product so i agree with uh, with uh, eric that uh, you know think you know if things would come uh, in a stable situation again uh, people uh, especially in the pharma industry there is no a, a big uh, push to change this is for sure i mean as a, as a clip typical typical situation however the companies that will be uh, how to say uh, smart enough to take advantage of this situation they will be able to to improve and to do some uh, process intensification or innovation that will pay off uh, maybe not immediately but in the in the medium long term for sure Thank you, Stefano. And I like the I like the debate. We don't want you all just agreeing with each other. That was I maybe spoke too soon. Um, so the next question, Dan, you mentioned um, obviously COVID-related vaccines and, and, and therapies. And so with with so many vaccines and, and therapies in development, are, are manufacturers struggling to access capacity at the minute from, from what you're seeing? Um, yes and no. I think um, there's been um, a massive rush to secure manufacturing capacity. Um, either utilizing in-house capabilities, um, like I said, with Regeneron, or to um, book space within CDMOs. Uh, there are um, there are a couple of examples of space being given up um, for COVID-19 uh, products, particularly within the sort of viral vector space, which is already um, uh, very overutilized. There's not enough viral vac vector capacity to deal with the the challenging the, the therapy in, uh, industry at the moment, but to actually use some of that space to manufacture some of the viral vectors vaccines that are coming through means there's even less space. So everyone is kind of trying to secure manufacturing space at the moment whether it's in the upstream or the downstream the fill finish um, 
it's every week there's deal after deal of um, uh, developer or antibody or vaccine developer uh, inking partnerships with um, CDMOs. Um, I'll mention Eric because um, I, I saw Resifarm this week has uh, um, inked a deal with um, Arcturus who's developing a, developing a vaccine for COVID-19 and maybe he'll speak about that but um, it's it seems to be a boom time for the CDMO industry at the moment because it, they were already doing pretty well from demand and now that COVID-19 has come to dominate everything they are um, I, I, I imagine their order books are absolutely overflowing. So, that, so that's a perfect inroad for Eric. <laughs> Eric is your order book <laughs> overflowing and booming as Dan, Dan indicated is that, a, is, that a, is that an accurate reflection or are you seeing more demand in particular dosage forms or areas of your business? Mm. Now, we are lucky to have the technology required for, for some of the projects that are, are currently active uh, with regards to COVID-19. So, of course, there is a strong demand for this and, and we are discussing with uh, several partners, not only the one that we made public uh, this week. However, for the large and, and, and the bulk part of our manufacturing, uh, well, it's a little bit up and down. I mean, we can see that for some products, uh, I mean, the products that are being used uh, in preparation for surgery, for example, well, yeah, the market basically is gone for the moment because not a lot of that is happening in the hospitals right now. But for consumer products, uh, demand is more or less at the, uh, at, the, at the stable level, I would say. All in all, uh, no, sales for our services is good, yes. <laughs> Very good, Eric. Thank you. Um, I like things like your strap line, good for business, which is, uh, which is, <laughs> is fitting for, for what, what's happening right now. And, and Stefano, I suppose from a, you, you, you have the fortune of seeing and working with numerous CDMOs, I understand. And are you seeing, uh, I suppose, the picture that Eric's painted where you are seeing a little bit of lumpiness amongst different suppliers or are you seeing kind of strong demand uh, particularly in the vaccines uh, part of the part of the industry no i think from my point of view uh, i don't see big differences uh, there might be some cases like eric was saying for some very specific uh, situation but uh, yeah of course the the the, the vaccine uh, capabilities of course are very under pressure but uh, on the other side, uh, um, some of the companies I'm in touch with are looking, for example, to install new technologies to serve uh, uh, new products uh, in the van. So, I mean, I see a quite uh, stable uh, activity. Of course, there are some areas that are affected. I'm involved in a number of respiratory projects that, uh, of course, are, are for the time being uh, uh, on hold at, at minimum because it's very difficult to 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 have the right patient on, on the clinical programs. And because pneumologists are mostly busy with, uh, with the intensive care units, uh, but uh, otherwise I see quite, quite stable and some cases even positive uh, growing the activities. Okay, thank you. So we actually have had a question um, through from one of our attendees and I certainly don't want to get Dan shouting um, out loud, but there have been a lot of discussions around how the industry can be resistant or slow to change. 
uh, and the, the attendee would like to know how do we think that the current global political pressures that are being placed on healthcare right now will impact the supply chain um, as we move into the future. I don't know who might want to sort of tackle this one first, Dan. Put, put down on the spot, put down on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> will we have raised voices? If I say something wrong politically here, I'll be getting so many death threats on Twitter. So I'm going to be trying to be careful what I say. Um, this is absolutely my own view. Um, uh, you know, Stefano and Eric are in the industry um, a lot deeper than I am. I've just got this kind of broad overview. I think... Um, I think a lot of the political discourse is a load of old guff. Um, I think there's, uh, like with many areas of society at the moment, people are trying to politicize it. Um, the US particularly, particularly, the US has a huge problem with drug prices um, and a minor issue with drug shortages, but, Healthcare is a um, very, very important subject to discuss when there is an election happening. Um, so to tie in healthcare with a sort of patriotic um, discourse, really, in my mind, I don't think there are going to be great changes. I think it is um, it, it is all talk at the moment. There are obviously a few projects that are going ahead. Um, as I mentioned before, Flow um, Corporation. Um, I think a couple of others as well looking to um, bring manufacturing back home. But um, really, I don't think the, yeah, I, I don't think the political situation is going to change the um, healthcare situation, uh, at least in the next, uh, in the short term. It's a difficult topic to comment on, but um, I mean, pharma industry may not be the fastest moving industry, but I think uh, compared to political decision making, we are not that bad. I wonder whether part of the intention of this question from the attendee is that there's probably never been so much invested interest by governments and we've not, it, it, the, it, we've, it's unprecedented acceleration in certain aspects of the, of the vaccine uh, programs that we're seeing. So I wonder if rather than a natural political outcry, it's more around that government investment and the, the push and the pressure on, on the industry. Stefano, have you got anything to add at all? Yeah. And I mean, of course, uh, this is always a very delicate matter. However, you're you're right because uh, at least I differentiate a lot what is happening in US and uh, what is happening in Europe. Uh, also, the the healthcare system are completely different, and in Europe, uh, also very <coughs> fragmented. Uh, uh, in each country is different. But uh, but you are uh, you're right and. Uh, I think there is also a human factor because when uh, you know prime minister and president they they get ill. I mean, probably the the tension in, in Europe. A lot of politicians have been hospitalized and they experience firsthand what does it mean. Maybe some uh, healthcare uh, budget cutting they did in the past. Uh, saying that uh, is true. There is a lot of attention in Europe. Uh, there is. Uh, 
historically in the last uh, yeah at least in the last 10 years there was a lot of price pressure on the, on the on drugs on on pharmaceutical products specifically and these pushed the innovation of course again but uh, on the other side uh, i think there is also expectation uh, to change something for me is very in europe is very interesting the position of uh, the pharmaceutical uh, in industry association in France, that they are really moving and they are getting support from, from, from the politician, from the government to make uh, the France independent from a, a healthcare point of view, supply of uh, active ingredients and so on. So I think that uh, there is an attention, how much this will change, uh, probably globally not in, harmonized, but in some case, uh, uh, this will happen. I mean, the, the, the decision in France, uh, uh, the Sanofi decision to create this new big player in API supply in Europe, uh, uh, of course, uh, there is behind the, the political support. It's not just uh, for business. Thank you, Stefano. And uh, j just moving on to the, I suppose we've got another 10 minutes or so left. And we talked a lot about, I suppose, drug supply and, and PPE. I mean, the other area that I think what we're seeing is, and that would be curious to get your thoughts on, is whether there's a risk of a shortage of equipment and the tools necessarily to actually make uh, the products. And Dan, I think you mentioned, I think vials in particular have been very highlighted um, in terms of a specific dosage form. But what impact is that having, particularly on the, on the biopharma space, but the pharmaceutical industry at large in terms of getting access to whatever equipment or tools are necessary to actually make products. Dan, I don't know if you want to want to comment first and then maybe we'll pass to Stefano and then Eric. Yeah, well, it's like um, like what I was saying on the um, the need for capacity, for manufacturing capacity for um, biologics and vaccines. Um, we're talking about um, uh, products which are going to need potentially billions of doses um, and while the manufacturing capacity is obviously at a shortage, the equipment that is required to make that is 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 going to uh, be another potential bottleneck. Um, on the biologics front, uh, the the use of single use systems, single use bioreactors, disposable products has been uh, well. It, it's fully integrated within the industry now. Um, it also provides a a much quicker way of manufacturing uh, uh, new products and um, uh, that a stainless steel or a um, a large building um, with with um, um, huge structures can't just it doesn't have the, the speed should I say um, so these projects that are all coming through for COVID-19 uh, the majority of them are dependent on these disposable systems which puts huge pressure on the uh, supply chain um, for those those single-use bioreactors those uh, um, those disposable tubes and that's before we even talk about the the, the glass and the vialing problems um, it's before COVID came along, uh, the, the demand on single use was huge. All the bioprocess vendors that manufacture these uh, systems and these, these, these pieces of equipment were, um, were you know, sort of seeing continuous double digit growth each year um, because of the biologics that were in the pipeline. Um, and now with COVID-19, it's, uh, it's, it's really a, a, it's all 
what's the phrase, full systems go um, within the bioprocess vendors to ensure there is adequate supply of these. Um, there have been a few investment announcements by these vendors. Um, so the uh, Cytiva, who used to be GE Healthcare, um, has announced that it's investing, um, I think, 500 million over the next few, few years to increase its um, uh, uh, its equipment, its tools, its uh, consumable products to support the industry. Uh, not specifically regarding COVID, but obviously COVID is a factor. Uh, we've seen the same from Replogen, from Fermo Fisher as well. Um, because if we're talking billions and billions of vaccines and antibodies, we are going to need the, um, the, the equipment and tools to manufacture these. And uh, if, if they're not available, there's going to, there's going to be shortages. Thank you, Dan. And uh, Eric, do you have any specific views around that sim similar subject as well? And then Stefano, no, if we could I, get your, your thoughts. To a, large, uh, uh, to a large degree, I agree with what Dan said, of course, for uh, the part of the industry where there is a big expansion expected, uh, I mean, this will be a challenge. But generally speaking, uh, we, we have seen this uh, as a, a real problem throughout the pandemic so far, because engineering companies and construction companies, uh, they, they are struggling like many others. Having people available, uh, also being able uh, to, to manufacture equipment. And then we have the impact of travel restrictions. I mean, when the normal way of working in the industry is that when you order new equipment, you do a factory acceptance test at the supplier. And this has obviously not been possible over the last six months. So a number of things where people have had to think differently in order to make sure that uh, engineering projects are, are, are uh, able to move forward. Thanks, Eric. And Stefano? Yes, on this subject, I also agree with uh, what has been said. And uh, I have a specific example, for example, uh, that uh, one of our partner was looking for us component that an ozone generator that should be something very easy in April was not available in Europe. We found a Czech company making this component. And I mean, this is just to, to say that uh, what has been said so far is, is true and also first that. Of course, uh, also in this case, like the uh, factory acceptance test or site acceptance test, for example, we are working on, on some programs uh, someone uh, is dreaming to have a, a virtual uh, audit, but uh, for factory acceptance test, there are already some good exercise using augmented reality. So even for maintenance or for training uh, for some technology, and there are companies that there are companies that have been, let me say, uh, readdressed the, the business in in this space. Uh, because uh, in effect, uh, also travel restriction is not uh, is not a detail. And for some technology, if there is not a chance to to train the people to use the technology, okay, you may have the equipment, but if you cannot use it, it's the, the same problem. Yeah, very true, Stefano. And, and we we're, we're almost out of time. And I was going to ask uh, for any closing remarks as we kind of come to the end of this uh, roundtable. We do have another question, actually. So. I'm going to kind of roll this in because it's quite a, a future looking uh, question. And so, um, so the question asks about, you know, how do, how do you think the, the pandemic 
um, and the spotlight that it's shone on, on vaccine development will impact the innovation side of things. And more specifically, does the industry need to start searching for testing and investing in quicker and more efficient development and manufacturing solutions? So I think the latter part of the question, I think, will be a great place to kind of end in terms of final comments, in terms of, I suppose, it's a bit of a crystal ball in how does the industry at large adapt, take the learnings that we've had from, from that COVID has brought and ultimately become a more efficient animal moving forward. So I reckon I'm going to pass to you because I think, you know, given the, the, the size and scale of Resi Farm, I think 9,000 employees, 30 plus sites across the world, um, I think you're well placed to probably provide an answer on this particular topic. And, and any other closing comments you've got, Eric, uh, would, be, would be hugely appreciated. Thank you. Well, I think the, the short answer on, on this question or double question is yes. We do need to become more efficient and fast when it comes to both uh, development processes and also setting up manufacturing processes. In many areas, I think the industry is pretty good uh, for the time being. I mean, compared to where we were, let's say 15, 20 years ago, when it comes to traditional manufacturing technologies, uh, pro uh, manufacturing setup goes significantly faster today than it, than it used to be. But of course, with the development of more advanced technologies in, in biotech, personalized medicine, et cetera, there are still a lot of new challenges that are, that are being exposed to the industry. So there will be learnings everywhere. And there's always a wish and desire to go faster, of course. And uh, if I'm just going to make uh, some closing remarks for, for this roundtable discussion, I, I think uh, the most important learning for me throughout these six months of the pandemic is that we have been able to identify some of the weaknesses in both our supply chains, but also in our organization. At the same time, we also have been able to identify strengths where, where we have been able to move uh, in a more flexible and, and slightly faster way than at least myself personally that, than I expected. So, I think there are both positive and, and uh, negative things uh, that we have learned throughout this pandemic. Thanks, Eric. Dan, good luck topping that. <laughs> I, I, think I'll just, I think I'll just agree with everything Eric said, and that's probably it. No, um, I, I will say, I think um, Eric was alluding to that there is no um, uh, simple there's no, there's no one answer for the, the whole industry. The industry is broad. It's got so many different modalities, so many different parts that um, uh, we can't generalize too much um, what COVID's going to do. But I do think, and this is a theme that, that's kind of been running through this discussion, that uh, the farmer industry generally has been, is pretty slow compared to other industries out there. So potentially if we if covid um allows the industry to uh experiment more or invest more in in areas like continuous manufacturing or uh, uh, bioprocess 4.0 and automation and such um maybe it will give um the industry a proverbial kick up the backside um that it, it it needs to kind of stimulate innovation and to increase efficiency um potentially in specific areas or maybe even more across the board but uh you know there may be a silver lining to this crisis at least in our industry thank you dan stefano any final comments 
Yeah, I will stay with uh, what Dan is saying because uh, in effect, I think uh, what Eric highlighted is true that this event uh, pushed the companies, you know, the, the pharmaceutical industry to understand uh, how they are doing things. And uh, uh, I think it's a big chance and possibly do uh, an improvement uh, uh, in efficiency, innovation uh, without the pressure of being in a pandemic situation would be better. But now I think the lesson must be learned because uh, I don't, I mean, I don't expect uh, this uh, pandemic will be the last one. Thanks Stefano. Lessons need to be learned. A kick up the backside and it's helped us recognize our strengths and weaknesses. I think that's a very nice way of summarizing, I think, a lot of what we've discussed today. So uh, all that's left for us to do, I can't believe we're out of time already, is to say on behalf of Laura and I, uh, thanks for watching and, and tuning in uh, to our uh, viewers. And also thanks to Stefano, Dan and Eric for taking uh, that some time and being so generous with their insights. I uh, hope you all found it uh, of our roundtable of value. A reminder that the sessions are also going to be available to download in here on demand via the Molecule to Market podcast and will also be available on our website as well. And for our live viewers, our next roundtable session is going to be tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern time. That's 3 p.m. GMT or 4 p.m. where these guys are all based in mainland Europe. Um, and we're going to be covering uh, clinical trials in 2020 and beyond. Until then, thank you very much. Stay safe and we will see you very soon. again thanks so much for tuning in to molecule to market we hope you enjoyed today's episode you can find more shows on spotify apple podcast or wherever you like to listen get in touch with us on our website molecule to marketpod.com and follow us on linkedin or twitter and we will see you again next week Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.